Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. I thought long and hard, okay, what are we going to talk about? Because, you know, there's an interesting thing that happened. At the beginning of the 20th century, you had the golden age of film, okay? And then another golden age happened in the 1970s, because what had happened was, is that the production style, the studios had all died. And so now you had this rating system where people were using things like language and nudity. There's a reason why I'm talking about this. And so tonight, I promise you, we're going to talk about the first golden age of film and the second golden age of film. The 1970s really were the second golden age of film. You think of all the filmmakers, all the films that came out, okay? And you think of the buddy pictures. There were a lot of buddy pictures. You know, you had um, Gene, ha- Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. You had Redford and Newman, you know, um, Jack Nicholson, who was in a lot of movies with Danny DeVito, you know, um, there's another one. There's a, I think it's called Scarecrow. It's with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. And they're these two, um, guys, I think they just got out of prison or something, you know, and those are the films of the seventies. The seventies were a very interesting time because you also had independent cinema, independent cinema. When we think of independent cinema, I immediately think of, you know, um, John Cassavetes and his wife, Jenna Rollins, because, you know, they basically financed those films. They put their house on the market. They would film those films in their home with their children, with their friends, and it gave birth to independent cinema. And independent cinema really thrived in the 1970s. You know, that was always kind of the thing. You know, now it's like if you want to win an award, you do an indie flick, you know, where it's bare bones and it's about characterization and it's about script, you know. It's not about the flash. It's not about the explosions. If you want that, you go to Michael Bay. (coughs) And I'm not dogging Michael Bay, But, you know, yeah, there are a lot of people that like Michael Bay. And, you know, I was someone had told me we were talking about car chases and they said, well, you know, the Fast and the Furious has the. uh, And I said, stop right there. Stop right there. I said, you know, there's um, the French connection. And of course, there's also a friend of of the Dr. Zeus film podcast of shit happens when you party naked reminded me that there was another film directed by William Friedkin called To Live and Die in L.A. I haven't watched it yet. William William Friedkin, who directed The French Connection, won an Academy Award for it, and then went on to direct The Exorcist. And The Exorcist is legendary, you know. I mean, he got Linda Blair to smack the crap out of, of Ellen Burstyn, you know, and... um if if you've never seen the the exorcist it is truly it is truly a movie it is not for the faint of heart although i love what beetlejuice said you know i've seen the exorcist about its 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every time i see it yeah so you know and i and i wasn't raised religious so but you know people like william friedkin um Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, 
George Lucas. You think of the 1970s. The 1970s, it really was a director's medium, okay? And I thought, we really aren't going to talk about one film in particular. What we're going to talk about is the second golden age. The first golden age, we're going to talk about that uh, at another date. Um, but the second golden age, you know what's interesting is is that a lot that's when a lot of the the classic film stars were starting to die okay and then you had those who were still alive like betty davis who was still working and jimmy stewart who was still working and cary grant and lillian gish who was always working and then you had these new new stars on the block you know um joan crawford famously said that faye dunaway um, reminded her of the classic film stars of her era, you know. And, and isn't that strange if Faye Dunaway would go on to play Mommy Dearest Joan Crawford, you know? But she was in Chinatown and you know Little Big Man. The other thing is, you you think of these movies how they're all interconnected, you know. Um, this person, you know, and as far as directors, you know, Francis Cord. Ford Coppola produced American Graffiti. A lot of people don't know that. That Coppola and George Lucas knew each other. You know, they both were hanging out in the San Francisco area and, um, you know, how Spielberg knew Scorsese and um, Scorsese knew De Palma. I mean, they all knew each other. And then Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, who, you know, directors were just like in awe of him, you know, and he was known as a difficult director. And all of these directors were making, you know, the, the youth film of the 1970s. And Stanley Kubrick took A Clockwork Orange and brought it to the screen. A very controversial movie. And I'll talk briefly about A Clockwork Orange because I've read the book. Very very interesting in terms of the language, the nastat, the slang. Um, you know, when I remember back in March, I was coming back from Trader Joe's and I look at the other side of the road where the train tracks are and I just see a bunch of people kicking around a ball and there's no other cars around. And I thought this is almost like out of a clockwork orange because it's so desolate. It wasn't dystopian, but you know, that's when people started staying home and people weren't going i mean this was the beginning of ghost town centrals you know what i mean in modern day america um and the world basically not just america you know and and then you have these great european directors you know um bernardo Bertolucci, um uh you know um Igmar Bergman, or Igmar Bergman, who was still working, you know, and making films, and um, Woody Allen. Woody Allen is a controversial figure, and here's why. is because, you know, what, what he is accused of, and I'm not going to talk about him, and I know, you know, oh, you shouldn't censor yourself, but I'm not going to touch it. You know, if anything, I can I can talk about Annie Hall because of Diane Keaton. You know, they did a lot of movies together. And Diane Keaton's real last name was Hall, Diane Hall. And basically, he crafted that character from Diane Keaton, the way she dressed, the way she spoke. So in a way, Annie Hall is a parody of Diane Keaton herself. Okay. And, and it's funny. It's a comedy. You know, um, it was the 1970s. 
the 1970s, I wasn't alive yet. So a lot of what I see, I, you know, it's on YouTube or you watch it. And um, I think I would just end tonight by talking about the sting. The sting because, you know, you think of the buddy, the buddy films and how Robert Redford really was put on the map by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, directed by George Roy Hill. You know, and Butch Cassidy was nominated for Academy Awards, none in the acting categories. That's the weird thing. And then in the 1970s, Redford and Newman did another movie together, which was The Sting. The Sting ended up winning all these Academy Awards. Robert Redford was nominated, didn't win. And um, it, it was a moment. It was a moment, you know... Um, and I'm going to talk about Redford and Newman at length at another time because we really have to devote a long segment to them. You know, they're both individual stars. Um, originally, from what I read, um, Steve McQueen was going to do Butch Cassidy, but he did not want his name below um, Newman's. And I think Newman was going to play the Sundance Kid. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. Um, you think of the 1960s, Paul Newman was truly, truly a big star. And the sad thing, though, was because he was such a big star, because he was a good looking star, people didn't take his acting ability seriously. And that's probably why he didn't win an Academy Award until The Color of Money, you know, um, for a character that he originated on film, which was, you know, Fast Eddie and the hustler and here the color of money was kind of like a sequel to the hustler you know and um robert redford later won an academy award for directing not acting for ordinary people because he directed ordinary people you know um but these two icons you know it all started with butch cassidy and the sundance kid butch cassidy and sundance kid which is it and and from what i read about it we're not going to go at length about it, um, is that a lot of the dialogue was kind of counterculture, you know, how they talk to each other, the situations, the music, the vibe of the movie. And so, yeah, they with the sting, the sting, you know, here they are, these two grifters, you know, and the music and the characterization, you know, the nuances, you know, where Paul Newman touches his nose and then everyone that he's connected to, they touch their nose too. Little things like that. Little affectations of these films, you know, of the 1970s. These are these are themes that, you know, under the studio system, you couldn't do. A movie like A Clockwork Orange could not have been made under the studio system. You know, and then the controversy of A Clockwork Orange, so much so that, that, you know, Stanley Kubrick had the power to pull it from theaters in England um, because of what was happening, how some people were receiving the film. You know, um, there were a lot of films, you know, from that came from books. And I wanted to touch on this, you know, Stephen King, you think I, I'm I'd have to look at a, a chart how many of his films have been or books have been made into movies a lot of them and it all began with carrie carrie was made into a movie in 1976 77 and it truly 
it changed everything. You think of, you know, Carrie um, played by Sissy Spacek. You know, you think of her mother played by Piper Laurie. And this the stir that Carrie created. And this is all from the mind of Stephen King. Okay? And you think of how many of his novels, you know, the... I mean, The Shining, you know, which he basically didn't like how Kubrick did it, you know, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's a lot, a lot of these authors and, 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 and I thought, you know, I'll touch on this because I didn't particularly enjoy the movie and I've only watched it once. And that's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I remember we had to read the book in college and it was written by Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey, very counterculture, you know, um, he was too old to be a hippie, but he was too young to be a beatnik, and, you know, uh, had the merry pranksters and the acid Kool-Aid tests, and out of that wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, about being outside of society, being outside of the norm, and here comes Milos Forman, this Czechoslovakian director who has just left Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia, communism and everything, okay? And basically, when he made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, what he did was Nurse Ratchet, she was a pretty nasty character. And he basically made her almost like she was representing communism. This is what happens when you go against communism. It's Nurse Ratchet. You feel the wrath of Nurse Ratchet. So it was symbolic, you know, and in a way, Jack Nicholson's character, you know, McMurphy and the chief were the representation of what you do when you go against um, the social norms. And, um, you know, yeah, and it's it's pretty powerful move. It's a powerful movie. It's a powerful moment. The ending always bothered me. You know, um, it ended up winning Jack an Academy Award, one of three. You know, it one flew over the cuckoo's nest is synonymous because since 1934, no one had won the Big Five at the Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. And in fact, I think Jack Nicholson wired um, the director of it happened one night, Frank Capra. Now, this happened again in 1991, and we will talk about this in another episode as well. In 1991, the silent well, 1992 actually because it came out in 91 the silence of the lambs won the big five best picture best director best actor and best actress and so there are three films that have only done that it happened one night from 1934 one flew over the cuckoo's nest from 1975 and silence of the lambs in 1991 And so the 1970s, you know, you think of all these movies. I mean, Taxi Driver, Rocky, Shaft, Superfly, Blaxploitation films, Foxy Brown, and Pam Greer. You look at everything that was within the 70s. Quentin Tarantino later brought back in the 90s and the 2000s. You know, with the Blaxploitation, he basically brought Pam Greer back for 
Jackie Brown. You know, for Kill Bill, he brought back David Carradine, who was this icon, this kung fu icon. And um, John Travolta. John Travolta, what had happened was he was big in the 70s. You know, you think of Saturday Night Fever, you think of Grease, um, was nominated for Saturday Night Fever. And then um, what happened was his career, he started to get these really bad roles, you know, comedies and all that. And it wasn't until 1994 that his career became totally revived with Pulp Fiction. And a lot of what Quentin Tarantino did is he borrowed, he was almost like, a hip-hop producer because you know with hip-hop you sample stuff from different eras a good example of that could also be the beastie boys look at the beastie boys with paul's boutique all these different film samples and music samples so what tarantino did in a very paul's boutique way is to start pinpoint things splice them together you know dialogue you look at pulp fiction a lot of it it owes to the 1970s in terms of the situations. And and you look at the icon that's in there, John Travolta, okay? You know, and music, you know, the 1970s was about these big soundtracks, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Star Wars. You know, the 1970s was the beginning of the blockbuster. And the two who were really responsible for that were... George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg really started it off with Jaws. And, you know, a lot of what Spielberg took from Alfred Hitchcock, you know how last week we talked about Psycho and how because the shark they were using in Jaws, the animatronic shark, it had problems. So that's why you didn't see the shark till almost the end of the movie. And it created this really great cat and mouse game within the movie. Jaws was released in 1975, Blockbuster. And then in 1977, George Lucas gave us Star Wars. Star Wars truly changed the game. Can we say Comic-Con? Okay. You know, um... It jumpstart the careers of, you know, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill. Uh, You had James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. You know, um, George Lucas. George Lucas, who became an icon. George Lucas was born and raised in Modesto, California. You know, he did his movie American Graffiti, which was supposed to take place in Modesto, California, because there really is a street, McHenry Avenue, that people would cruise. And, you know, they would go to Mel's Diner. And what happened was when they were going to film American Graffiti, they couldn't film it in Modesto because Modesto had changed. It was it no longer looked the way it did in the era that Lucas wanted to film it in. You know, and um, originally George Lucas said he wanted to do films of independent nature like American Graffiti. He did not want to do. In fact, that's why he only directed the first Star Wars. He didn't direct until he was doing the, you know, um, prequels in the 90s. You know, he went on to produce the Indiana Jones movies with 
Steven Spielberg. You know, Steven Spielberg and Lucas, I mean, you think of the 1970s blockbusters, and then you think of the 1970s, you think of someone who really was consistent, Scorsese, Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet, you know, we all know from 12 Angry Men, the director. And here he was making Serpico, and he was making The Wiz, and he was making, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, which is one of my favorites, you know. And it was these ensemble movies. There were a lot of ensemble movies in the 1970s. You know, you think of um, a good example of that is um, Steven Spielberg, you know, uh, he had done Jaws, you know, Jaws, Jaws had, it was an ensemble, you know, you had Richard Dreyfuss, um, you had Roy Schneider, and you had, um, the gentleman who was also in the sting, Robert Shaw, who is so, um, intimidating in the sting, and he is also in Jaws, and in fact, in reality, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus didn't like each other or, you know, and, you know, Richard Dreyfus went on to do um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a blockbuster directed by Steven Spielberg. You know, it wasn't until the 1980s that Spielberg didn't want to just do blockbusters. Thus, he went on to do, you know, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun. And, but the 1970s, that's when they all cut their teeth. You know, that is the truly second golden age of film. You think of all of these films and all these icons, you know, Robert De Niro, um, Al Pacino. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, who were in the Godfather movies, you know. Al Pacino was in the first Godfather. Robert De Niro won an Academy Award for the second Godfather, playing a young Vito Corleone. You know, and then Francis Ford Coppola. We're going to end talking about Francis Ford Coppola. You know, he started out as a screenwriter, okay? Became a producer. Like I said, he produced his good friend George Lucas's American Graffiti. Went on to direct The Godfather, okay? Godfather 2, The Conversation. And of course, ended the 1970s with Apocalypse Now. And a lot of people that I've talked to when it comes to Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Now is such an iconic, controversial moment because it dealt with the Vietnam War. Probably one of the most controversial wars, um, you know, and you think of those brave men and women and to this day, you know, it it's a dark moment. And the way that Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is truly a shocking movie to watch. Not so much for those who were there, who lived it. Those who were there and lived it probably would look at Apocalypse Now and say it was a lot worse than that. Apocalypse Now really is synonymous with so many moments that have been parodied. You know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like victory. You know, you're an errand boy sent by grossly grocery clerks to collect a bill stuff like that um but for me i was a doors i'm a doors fan and the fact that the end by the doors opens apocalypse now it's it's a brutal moment you see bombs going off you see fire the jungle to have that song start off that movie 
And the interesting thing about that is, is that the doors were being listened to by Vietnam, the, the men serving in Vietnam. And Dan Rather later interviewed the two surviving doors, um, John Densmore and Robbie Krieger. And, you know, they they knew that the vets were listening to them, you know, the, because the doors, it was not about flower powder. There was something very dark and visceral about the music of the doors. And the fact that Francis Ford Coppola bought all of the songs to use in the movie and only used one, which happened to be the end that opened the movie. And Robbie Krieger says that will forever sit with him is the fact that his guitars open Apocalypse Now. That moment. You know, Apocalypse Now, um, it, it costs a lot of money to make. It was controversial. Um, Francis Ford Coppola had everything riding on it. He put his house up for sale to finance it. Um, you know, and then what happened is, you know, the behind the scenes to me is much more interesting than the actual movie itself. And I, and I don't want Francis Ford Coppola to take that wrongly. And he would probably agree with me is because the drama that really ensued during the making of Apocalypse Now, they had a typhoon, they were filming in the Philippines. And then what happened was, is that Martin Sheen, the star of Apocalypse Now, had a, a near fatal heart attack and they couldn't let it get out. So for years, they didn't talk about it. Because the financiers and the studio had it been leaked that Martin Sheen was near death, was given the last rites, had a very bad heart attack. Apocalypse Now would have been shut down indefinitely. So, you know, that's, a, that's interesting to me is that the fact that they couldn't talk about that. And you have an audio in the documentary where Francis Ford Coppola is pissed because it's almost gotten out that Marty had the heart attack. And they had to shoot around him until he was well enough to come back, you know. And and then you, you know, um, Brando didn't want to show up at first. And when he did show, showed up to the set of Apocalypse Now, he was very seriously overweight. And they had to find way, you know, that's why he was always shot in the dark. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting movie. It had a lot of shitstorm moments. You know, you had Lawrence Fishburne who lied about his age to get in the movie. Okay. You know, you have Dennis Hopper. You have Marlon Brando. You have, I mean, it was a, it was truly an ensemble of characters. Okay. You have Martin Sheen. You have Harrison Ford who is in the movie briefly. You know, um, and then you have, you know, you, you got to remember the, the Vietnam War had just ended. Okay. And here was Apocalypse Now, you know, telling the tale from the book Heart of Darkness. So here, I, I want to make sure I get everyone in the cast, you know. You have Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall, who famously said, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. And he, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had, I want to make sure that I go through the list. Because this is important, you know. Um, Apocalypse Now really was a moment. Um, 
I wanted to mention the guy who played the chef, um, Frederick Forrest. You had Albert Hall. You had Sam Bottoms, Bottoms, Lawrence Fishburne, Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper. Oh, my God. Um, Even Francis Ford Coppola makes uh, an appearance. Arlie Emery, who went on to do Full Metal Jacket, is also in it. So Apocalypse Now had a budget of $31 million. That's a lot of money. And the box office has took in $150 million. It was released at Cannes in May of 1979. And it was released internationally on August 15th, 1979. Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, you think that's that's $31 million back then was a lot of money. And, um, you know, um, it later, I mean, it's ranked very well. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Robert Duvall. It went on to win Best Cinematography and Best Sound. It is ranked number 14 in Sight and Sound's Greatest Films poll of 2012 and number 6 in the Director's Poll of Greatest Films of All Time. Roger Ebert also included it in his top 10 list of greatest films ever in 2012. Um, so Apocalypse Now, you know, like I said, it, take pla- it takes place during the Vietnam War. Um, the, fish, the Fifth Special uh, Forces, uh, you know, uh, Colonel E. Kurtz, played by, of course, you know, Marlon Brando. It is it is famous for Brando. It's famous for Martin Sheen. Um, the sights in Apocalypse Now, I haven't watched it in a long time. It is truly disturbing to watch. You literally have to prepare to watch Apocalypse Now. And so the 1970s, if I left anyone out, we'll talk more about it extensively on the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. As always, unpleasant dreams. <laughs>